few minutes ago we sang a song, Be Thou My Vision. I think if you look at the words of that uh, hymn very carefully, that might have been a hymn penned by David himself. I think that was David's heart. But these are words that David wrote. I am in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell amongst ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Let's pray. Father, we proclaim the preeminence of Christ. He created all things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, and kings. We have asked you in our hymn to be our vision. So as we look again at the lives of King Saul and King to be David, will you lift our eyes beyond them to see the one who is King of Kings, altogether faithful, altogether righteous, altogether compassionate, altogether merciful, altogether patient and long-suffering, altogether beautiful. Father, may we look at him and worship. We need to hear from you, Father, because we are wayward. Our thinking is muddled. Our hearts are sinful. Please call us back if we are wandering this afternoon. Please encourage us and reassure us if we feel that we are just holding on. May your word be a comfort and a joy to us. And please, Lord, help me. Help me to speak clearly and well. Encourage my heart as I preach. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God. Amen. We moved home recently and we soon found something vital was missing. The bathroom door didn't have a lock. Uh, so when we had visitors, we suggested that they whistled when they went into the bathroom uh, to avoid the uh, embarrassment of uh, interruption. Our two-year-old grandson, Eli, he's the one that buzzes about like a bee, and if you sit close to him when we're singing the hymns, he sings the only words he knows is snowman, apparently. He sings snowman all the time. Well, our two-year-old grandson, uh, he became very nervous uh, when he heard our bathroom called the whistling toilet. He was reluctant to use it. He didn't want to go in. Perhaps in his little head, he thought that our toilet would make loud whistling noises or something. I don't know what was in his head. Anyway, our problem is solved. We now have a lock fitted. So you can rest assured that if you visitors, when you visitors, I hope, uh, if you need to use the bathroom, then you can feel totally safe and secure from interruptions unlike King Saul in our reading this afternoon, who became very aware of his insecurity when using the bathroom. Let me give you some context. In uh, the last chapter we uh, had last week, David was wronged for doing right. He saved the Israelite city of Keilah uh, that was being uh, uh, terrorised by the Philistines. Uh, instead of thanking David... 
uh, the people of that city, they went to King Saul, who was hunting David down to kill him, uh, to tell him, to tell them, uh, to, sorry, to tell him where King David was. And we know, don't we, it's tough uh, when you do the right thing and it brings a very difficult uh, result. But in our chapter, David isn't going to face the problem of a wrong result from doing the right thing. He's going to face what I think is the even more difficult task, the possibility of getting the right result by doing the wrong thing. Will David be patient under pressure? Um, In our studies of the life of David, we're looking at the development of his character. What is godly character? I like the definition by uh, a man called Eric Thurns. Godly character is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And I believe that was David's heart, loving what God loves and hating what God hates. That's why he could write uh, lovely uh, um, psalms. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and forever. So let's begin by looking at uh, four tests of David's patience under pressure. First of all, we see David's character tested by circumstances. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now it happened uh, that when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, it was told to him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness in Engedi. Uh, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Saul is told where David is. And he goes to search for him in the wilderness in En Gede. Saul has uh, 3,000 of his Hebrew SAS with him. Uh, We know David only has about 600 men. So Saul has this massive advantage in any battle. And Saul perhaps has a psychological advantage, humanly speaking, because he's just chased off the Philistines. He's at the top of his game. Uh, so Saul comes to Engedi, where David and his men are hiding in a cave. I don't know what the caves in Engedi are like, uh, but uh, apparently they were a great place to hide. Uh, they had uh, big cave systems rather than one cave, and natural springs gave them a good supply of water. I imagine it's like the caves around Castleton in Derbyshire, if you've ever been there. So here's uh, David staring at this army of 3,000 troops, armed to the teeth and out to get just him. Was he thinking, I didn't ask for any of this. Samuel was the one who came to me and said I was going to be king. I didn't go looking for all this trouble. Why is this happening to me? I know when trouble comes to me, that's the first question that comes into my mind. Why is this happening to me? Perhaps it comes to you as well. Um, Whilst David was hiding in En Gedi, we actually know what he was thinking, because those two Psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, were written whilst he was hiding there. These psalms tell us what he thought about his enemies, Saul and his army. He says they're lions, ravenous beasts, who are in hot pursuit of him, hunting him down. And then they tell us what he thought about his situation. He feels like he's in prison. And when you're in prison, you're not in control, are you? You can't do anything. 
and you can't go anywhere. But in the midst of his distress, David also looks to God and he sees God as his refuge. His refuge isn't the cave, it isn't his men, but God is David's refuge. Uh, And David puts his trust in God to help him through. So this is David's state of mind when Saul and his hand-picked special forces turn up right outside the very cave where David and his men are hiding. And at that very moment, King Saul decides he needs the bathroom and he goes deep into that cave. Verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, the Bible is a realistic book. It deals with real people uh, leading real lives. There's probably no experience uh, of life in the world that the Bible doesn't deal with. When the translator politely says that Paul went into the cave to relieve himself, I understand the original language literally means he went in to put his robe around his ankles. I'll leave that picture with you. I'm going no further. David's arch enemy Saul, this ravenous beast who's in hot pursuit of him, is separated from his army. As far as he's concerned, he's all alone, uh, but he's exposed and he's vulnerable. We're actually with the eyes of 601 men all looking at him. Um, He's at David's mercy. But Saul's happy. He doesn't know this. He thinks he has the most secure bathroom in the whole of the Engedi wilderness. After all, he's got 3,000 crack troops outside making sure no one comes in. It's a bit better than the lock on my bathroom, I'll tell you. Um, So now we know what David is thinking, uh, hot pursuit of ravenous beasts. We know what King Saul is thinking. I'm okay, pretty comfortable. And now we see what David's men are thinking. Verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Uh, David's men are saying this is God's providence and they're right. I wonder if you know that little song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it and be glad in it. That's why I'm not on the choir. Um, But I think David's men must have been singing that in this cave when Saul turns up. Uh, They they must have thought that all their birthdays had come at once because God has put Saul into our hands. All our troubles are over. And then they quote God, don't they? This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. The problem is, God never told David, I will give your enemies into your hand for you to deal with as you wish. God told David he would be king. Jonathan even said that his dad Saul knew David was going to be king. But never did God tell David that he would be the one to end Saul's life. David's men sounded scriptural, but David's men were wrong. They were kind of out-bibling the Bible. It sounded right. It sounded like something God would say, but God never said it. David's men put their own words into God's mouth 
because that's their, what they wanted God to say, because God had put Saul into their hands. And often, we can be circumstances-led people. The circumstances look right. The circumstances look good. They're favourable to us, and so we say it's God's will, and we do what we want to do. But God wants us to be people of the word, to be founded on the word, to stay founded on the word, to stay grounded in his word. Whatever else seems right, if we don't listen to what God says in his word, we're heading actually for disaster. Proverbs 14 puts it like this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Don't underestimate what a temptation this is for David. He's behind Saul, weapon in hand, Saul at his mercy. Will David listen to the advice or his men have given him? Just assassinate him. Or will he be patient and wait on God's timing? Uh, halfway through verse 4, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Instead of cutting Saul's throat, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. He takes this enormous risk and ends up with a piece of cloth. Is he going to do dressmaking? What's the idea? What is he thinking? And here we consider David's character tested by conscience. When David gets back to his men, he's in turmoil. Verse 5, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. What's so bad about what he's done? Well, the robe is a picture of Saul's royal authority. And cutting the robe is like saying to Saul, I'm cutting away your royal authority. If you remember in chapter 15, the prophet Samuel rebuked Saul for his hard-hearted disobedience to God. In his distress, Saul tries to keep Samuel from leaving by grabbing his robe. And a piece of Samuel's robe tears away as he is leaving. Saul is left holding this torn piece of material. And Saul prophesied, uh, Samuel prophesies to Saul, The Lord has told, torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And here... A kind of reflection of that, David is left holding a cut-off piece of material from Saul's robe. David is conscience-stricken. He has a tender conscience. When God speaks, David listens. I personally believe that David was right to feel guilty. I do believe that he was wrong to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. We live in a culture, you know, which has little place for guilt. There's nothing wrong with that. has become a kind of watchword that covers almost everything. Sin and guilty conscience have really been thrown away. Uh, but we are people who walk with God, and he wants us to have tender consciences. He wants us to have sensitive and responsive hearts. When we realise that we've done something wrong, do we feel guilty 
I do hope so, because feeling guilty when you've done something wrong isn't a problem. Uh, Feeling guilty when you've done something wrong is a grace gift from God that uh, leads to uh, repentance, that leads to restored, close fellowship with our Father. May the Lord give us tender consciences uh, that lead us to repentance, uh, that hear his voice and obey him. So David's conscience is troubled. He's smitten uh, by God's word. Let's look at what concerned him. Verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. David is reminding his men who Saul is. He's reminding his men what his office was and why that was the case. You see, whatever sort of man Saul was, and we've learned over the last few weeks he was a pretty nasty character, he was the Lord's anointed. I understand in the army they have a saying that you don't salute the man, you salute the rank. The senior officer may be a total idiot, but that doesn't matter. You salute him by virtue of his position and that's precisely the principle here. David owed Saul his respect because Saul is the king. He may have been, he has been consecrated and set apart by God uh, for this position. Uh, To harm the king that God has put in place is actually to repel against God himself who enthroned him. Uh, So David calls a man like Saul the Lord's anointed because Saul is the Lord's anointed still. God had told Saul that he wasn't going to be king and that he was going to give the kingdom to somebody else, but God hadn't done that yet. And David wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. David was going to let God do God's work in God's time. David was going to be patient. I wonder if you are patient under pressure. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. But we shouldn't start doing the things that only God should do. When we're furious with people who have caused us pain and heartache, we should remember what one pastor said. It's God's job to judge them. It's my job to love them. And we need to let God do his job. And we need to pray for grace to do ours. David was reminding his men that he had always been a loyal and faithful servant of Saul. He wasn't a rebel. God had promised David the kingdom, but David was prepared to wait for God's time. So he turns to his men, and that's verse 7, and with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and didn't allow them to attack Saul. You see, It wasn't just David who was going through a hard time because of Saul. So were these 600 and odd men. They wanted to get even and end their problems by killing Saul. David doesn't just give them some advice. He doesn't just give them a pep talk. He actually tears them apart. Again, I understand the word translated sharply rebuked literally means he wounded them. He wounds his men with his words. He tells them uh, what they wanted was against God's word and God's will. 
for someone who is the Lord's anointed. David here is shepherding his men. He's telling them firmly what God's word and God's will is. And we should always pray for the shepherds of our church. Sometimes they might have to tell us firmly what God's word and will is. And may we submit graciously to their wise counsel, even if it wounds us. And so David persuades his men. And in verse 7, Saul left the cave and went on his way, totally unaware of how close he'd been to meeting his God. And now we see David's character tested by confrontation. When I was thinking, I thought David had been a very brave person, you know. As a shepherd boy, we know he fought with bears and lions. Now, I hold a pass to uh, uh, the Yorkshire Wildlife Park. There are a few lions in Yorkshire Wildlife Park and a few bears. Man alive, they're big. I think the bears are more scary than the lions. But I wouldn't want to be over the other side of the fence. I'm quite happy to have that big fence between me and them. And then as a young man, he looked at a nine foot six inch giant armed to the teeth and said, God is with me. I can take this giant down. I'd have been under my camp bed with the rest of the troops with my knees knocking. But I think this is the moment of greatest bravery. You see, David leaves his men, leaves the safety of the cave, walks into the enemy camp and faces Saul and his troops alone. Verse 8, then David went out of the cave and he called to Saul, my lord, the king, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. David is showing his reverence for and his submission to Saul as the king. And at the same time, he makes himself very vulnerable. But David also has something to say. He appeals to the king to set aside the things others have told him, to listen to his words and compare them to his actions and then judge David's guilt or innocence for himself. He asks the king, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? I think David's been a bit political here, giving the Saul some wriggle room. Because the only person we know of who says that David is trying to harm Saul is Saul himself. But then David asks Saul to consider three things. Firstly, he points Saul to God's providence, verse 10. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Uh, David's men were right when they said, this is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands. This was the Lord's doing, that out of all the caves in Engedi, Saul should go into that cave and go in alone. And then David asks Saul to consider his innocence in verse 10. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hands on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. 
Saul must have realized that David had held his life in his hands. And David, very kindly, I think, calls him my father. David pleads his innocence. See, there, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. He says, I've never attacked you. I've only ever attacked Israel's enemies. Finally, David appeals to justice. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. From evildoers come evil deeds. I think there's a, an American saying that something, says something like, if you wrestle with pigs, you'll get as dirty as they are, but they'll enjoy it more. Uh, David isn't going to sink to their level. And then in verse 14, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. David, in this time of confrontation, deals with Saul in real humility. He acknowledges him as Lord and King. He treats him with reverence and respect. He even calls him my father. But although Saul is God's anointed, he still needed to be accountable for his actions and his words. David calls on God to judge between them and to avenge him. But whatever happens, David says, my hand will not touch you. David is going to be patient. David is going to wait on God's timing. So David puts his life into Saul's hands. Actually, ultimately, it's into God's hands. For it's to God that David has made his ultimate appeal. It's to God that he looks to ju for justice, not to Saul. And then in our final uh, verses, we see David's character tested by conciliation or reconciliation. For the first time, Saul acknowledges that David is more honorable and righteous than he is, and that God will give the kingdom to David. Saul asks David not to kill his children, and David will keep his word uh, while ever he is king. And then in verse 22, so David gave his oath to Saul, then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. How very wise. David was brave, but he wasn't foolish. You see, Saul's words turn out to be the emotion of a moment, not true repentance, not a changed heart, not a new direction in life. David was right to be cautious, to say, I'm going to stop in the stronghold until I see the direction of Saul's life. I don't often give advice, but if a homicidal maniac who's been hunting you down for weeks suddenly invites you home for coffee and cakes, don't go. Uh, go home, bolt your door, and wait and see what happens. You see, true reconciliation after great injustice needs more than an apology in the heat of the moment.
But what seemed right to David is to submit to his king, to faithfully serve him, seeking his best interest. David doesn't oppose Saul or act in any way detrimental to him. Submission to his king means acting in a way that promotes Saul's best. And I believe that's the most challenging example of what Jesus calls loving your neighbour. And I do believe that that's a wonderful example of godly character, to love God as David did, and to love the most unlovable neighbour as David did. So how does God build godly character in his people? Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Godly character grows through suffering. God grows Christian character by taking us through tough times. He allows us to learn what it means to persevere in tough times, sometimes by keeping us in tough times. And as a result of persevering, patiently waiting on God in those tough times, godly character grows. You know, it's very easy to say, uh, to love what God loves when life is great, when everything is wonderful, the birds are singing, the sun is shining. No problems. It's harder to love what God loves when what God wants you to do is the exact opposite of what you want to do. Then you get a bit of tension. But what a test of patience and obedience it is to love what God loves when what God wants you to do is the exact opposite of what you want to do and your obedience is going to cost you dearly, physically emotionally and mentally. I don't know about you, but I'm not like Paul. I don't glory in my sufferings. In fact, when I'm suffering, I look for a way out, a way to bring my sufferings to an end and quickly. I am not patient in suffering. That's my problem when I'm in trouble, perhaps yours as well. It was David's temptation too, you know, really. David, the innocent, is on the run. He's homeless, hotly pursued by a ravenous beast who has already made attempts on his life. David knows what suffering is, and the man responsible is given into his hands. Uh, David faces a test of character. Will he take advantage of Saul's position? Will he take the easy way to the throne? Will he make a grab for glory? Will he use the wrong means to get to the right end? Will his patience hold out? And as we know, he spares the king. He actually chooses uh, to continue to suffer. Just carry on reading 1 Samuel. He actually chooses to continue to suffer in obedience to God's will. And David's greater son and lord, King Jesus, he was tempted in a similar way, you know, after his baptism by John at the Jordan, 
He was alone in the wilderness. He was led there by the Spirit. And the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, all this I'll give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. You do realize God had promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in Psalm 2. He said, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And here comes the devil, reminding Jesus of God's promise and saying, all the kingdoms of the world, you can have them right now. You don't have to be despised and rejected, you know. There's no need to be a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Why be stricken and afflicted? Why be pierced and crushed? You don't have to suffer the cross. You can avoid death and the grave. There's no need for any of that. Have the kingdom now. It's easy. Just bow down and worship me. But Jesus was faithful to God's will and to God's work and to God's ends and to God's means and faithful to God's timing as well. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. What does it mean for Jesus to obey the Father in the darkness of the garden? We hear only the heart of Jesus and his heart is stricken. If it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. And he waits for the Father's face to be turned away. He waits to be forsaken as he obeys his Father's will. You see, Jesus is the anointed one who must die. He's the suffering servant. He's the king whose throne is a cross. Jesus enters the valley of the shadow of death and he dies as he fulfills his Father's will and work and ends faithful to God's means and God's timing. By his death and resurrection, we are reconciled to God, not David to King Saul, but we are reconciled to God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross for the greatest offence, our sin, our sinfulness, our rebellion. The Lord Jesus paid the greatest price. To follow after Jesus is a call to follow after God. Sometimes his call may require our prolonged suffering. Sometimes his call may even require our depth. And in the midst of our suffering, we may be tempted to look for alternatives the quick way out, an easier path. But godly character is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Even in those things we do, those decisions we make, when no one's looking, when we can get away with it. It's really hard to be godly when our obedience is going to cost us dearly. Lots of us know that from experience. Some of you facing hard tests of obedience, some temptation right now. But may we be given the grace to keep on loving what God loves, hating what God hates, to keep on being patient, to keep on persevering in adversity, to keep on waiting on God, even 
at the darkest, most testing times and circumstances. And may God make us more godly, more like Jesus. For in all things, our hope is in Jesus.